0: Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. You're back with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell. National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. G'day, Alan. Hey, Darren. Before we begin, can I just say how pleased we are at the response to our last episode, an interview with Richard Maud, who, of course, was until recently Deputy Secretary Indo-Pacific Group at DFAT and is now with the Asia Society. It's on track to be our second most downloaded episode ever. And of course, number one remains our exclusive interview with the head of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, Paul Simon. I'm telling you this now because for me, the interview with Richard was maybe also one of the most interesting conceptual discussions we've had on the podcast. And that's saying something, that's a high bar. And in some ways, to me, it was even a little surprising. And if you're listening to this now, you've almost certainly already heard the episode, So rather than ask you to subscribe or rate us on iTunes, which of course is what you normally hear on podcasts, can I make a different request? Just this one time, can you open up the app that you're using to listen to the podcast, find the Maud episode and use the share feature so that you can text or email the episode to one friend who you know is interested in Australian foreign policy and international affairs and probably or maybe hasn't found the podcast yet? Okay, we are recording this in the evening of Friday the 6th of March, and as we did with our last episode on the news, we're going to begin with the coronavirus and talk about some facets of this story that are most interesting to us. Next, we'll turn to domestic security issues in light of a rare public statement by the head of ASIO, and we'll finish with recent bilateral visits to Australia by the leaders of Indonesia and New Zealand. Let's get started. Okay, coronavirus or COVID-19. Alan, let's start with where it began in China and and the Chinese response. I've seen this past week, uh, Chinese municipalities and cities have started to enact their own travel restrictions and mandatory quarantines on arrivals from other countries like Iran, South Korea, Italy and Japan. And China is also evacuating its own citizens out of Iran. So this suggests, of course, that the Chinese think that China is a safer place for their own people than those other countries. And reporting does seem to suggest that China is getting the virus under control within its own borders. This is obviously not certain, but that's sort of where the direction of discussion seems to be going. And of course, it has done so through utilising these drastic measures that included shutting down the city of Wuhan, which has 11 million people. So with that in mind, can I quote an epidemiologist, Elizabeth Pisani, talking about the supportive positions of the WHO, the World Health Organization Director General, Tedros Adhamon Ghebreyesus, towards the Chinese government. So she's talking about why the WHO has been so supportive. And she says this reflects, quote, something we in the global health mafia do not admit the discipline of public health inherently prioritises the collective good over individual freedom. Authoritarian regimes trample on individuals, but can also be good for public health. Quote. So, Alan, acknowledging that neither of us is a public health expert, how should we process an argument like this that authoritarianism might be good in a public health crisis?
1: Well, we've already seen authoritarianism usefully at work in the Australian government's own response with travel bans from China, Iran and South Korea, and the imposition of quarantine on Australians returning home. The government has now listed COVID-19 under the Biosecurity Act, and that gives it huge powers to compulsorily screen people and impose biocontrol orders on their movement and behaviour if necessary. And it can declare a human health response zones from which people can be banned from entering. So, look, just quoting the language of the Act, and I must say I didn't know this off by heart. I had to look it up. <laughs> this is a quote. During a human biosecurity emergency period, the health minister may determine any requirement that he or she is satisfied is necessary to prevent or control the emergence, establishment or spread of the Declaration-listed Human Disease in Australian Territory. We've had examples of authoritarian responses recently to other regional um, public health crises, like the compulsory vaccination campaign which followed the measles epidemic in uh, Samoa, in which more than 80 people, most of them children, died. So, of course, the best option is voluntary public compliance based on broad education and information from trusted institutions. But even in a democracy like ours, we've always accepted that there will be times and circumstances when our individual liberties might be constrained for the public good. So all countries will implement such measures in different ways, no doubt in places like China, with fewer protections for individuals.
0: Mm, That's very interesting. I mean, I'm trying... I wonder, if, though, if there's a distinction between an authoritarian response, a particular set of policy measures, and an overall system of authoritarianism. I mean, it's true that living in a democracy, we accept that at times, from time to time, personal freedoms must be constrained for some broader public good. But I'm wondering if we're living in an era now where the the frequency and the density of those times is rising, such that the equilibrium level of government intervention becomes higher. And then you contrast that with the success of a system, an overall authoritarian system like China. And I just, I wonder if that has implications for how we can maintain democratic resilience. Well, maybe. Last week, I went to a speech that the
1: ALP's Tim Watts, who's one of the most reflective of the younger MPs, gave to the Lowy Institute. And he was highlighting the findings of the Australian Electoral Survey that just 58% of Australians are satisfied with how our democracy is working. And earlier, Lowy poll research that found one in three Australians under 30 believes that in some circumstances a non-democratic government can be preferable. Mm. So that does suggest that voters in this democracy think that their governments have failed to show competence in dealing with emerging problems recently. And between you and me, you'd have to say there's a (laughs) bit of evidence of that. But the the message does seem to be being recognised. It's been interesting for me to see in the uh, federal government's comparative responses to the bushfires and the coronavirus how much more weight it's now putting on emphasising the way in which the various parts and levels of government are working together for effective outcomes. Mm. Uh, Well, what about you, Darren? What's your assessment of the Chinese response now that some time has passed?
0: Yeah, in our first discussion a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, I mentioned the tragic death of Dr. Li Wenliang, who was one of the doctors who initially raised the alarm in Wuhan only to be reprimanded by the authorities and sort of silenced. And at the time of that recording, Chinese internet users had been expressing their outrage at the death, and and I, along with I think many China watchers, at least on Twitter, were wondering whether or not this outburst of grief and anger might signal the beginning of a more turbulent political period for the CCP. And from what I can see, that hasn't happened, at least not yet. Now, the economic impact of the virus is only just beginning, but I'm seeing, as I said earlier, more and more reporting that the Chinese authorities are getting the virus itself contained and that in some senses, life is beginning slowly to return to normal. Now, gosh, i don't I don't know for sure, but let's assume for the moment that this this actually proceeds along this path. I mean, would that mean that the Chinese government has succeeded? locking down a city of 11 million and quarantining a province of 60 million is is really an astonishing feat as is building hospitals in something like 10 days and so you know this crisis has really shown the capacity of the chinese state to mobilize it's it's very impressive but of course it's also the case that the initial response was delayed because of the doctors like dr lee being silenced and i've read other reports saying that A laboratory that released information ahead of authorities has been shut down, temporarily at least, and some early samples appear to have been destroyed. All of this sort of swirling around the notion that the Communist Party was seeking to protect itself rather than act in the interests of, of public health, at least from the outset. And of course, we shouldn't discount the personal horror for those in particular who have been trapped inside of Wuhan itself. I've seen footage in some cases of of residents being welded inside their buildings. And that that obviously is is really quite horrifying. So in my conclusion, if we assume things continue to get better in China, is that the coronavirus episode will end up being another Rorschach test on China. Those who want to find fault with or or identify fragility in the Chinese system will have much evidence to work with. But for those who think for all its faults and, and horrors they see a generally effective model of political order and economic organisation, well, those people will have evidence to support their views too. If I can next take another quote from Pisani, the epidemiologist, and I'm going to combine that with something that Peter Harcher wrote this past week in the Sydney Morning Herald. So first from Pisani, quote, Kedros's two-faced messaging highlights another fact too. The WHO Can't impose its will on its shareholder states and tiptoes especially carefully around the more powerful of them. Now, if we quote Harcher, who is discussing why the Australian government had declared a pandemic even though the WHO had not done so, quote, why were Australians ahead of the world? For a very simple reason they don't trust the WHO. The information from multiple international sources is that the WHO is under intense pressure from the Chinese government and is succumbing to it. Now, Harcher was on Insiders last Sunday and he clarified saying that what he had heard was that the government had been told by the chief medical officer that there was no medical or health-based explanation for why the WHO had not declared a pandemic. Harcher then also pointed out that great powers in times past have also leaned on the organisation before, citing US pressure uh, not to declare an AIDS pandemic in the 1980s. So Alan, can I ask, what do you make of the Australian government getting out ahead of the WHO in terms of its policy response? Well, I don't quite understand what the point is here.
1: We we were under no obligation to wait for some declaration by WHO defining a pandemic, which is a really technical decision, before we decided whether or not we would act against the coronavirus. There was no danger here of our being victims of coercive (laughs) globalism. The term pandemic wasn't used for SARS, for example, either. The Australian government is fully sovereign in its relationship with WHO and WHO has usually been held up as one of the better performing multilateral organisations.
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting to me or what jumped out at me from the of piece is not so much whether or not Australia is, is trusting the WHO. And as you said, Alan, there's no reason to think that the WHO is behaving particularly badly or performing poorly. It was more... Would our response actually undermine what the WHO is trying to do? I mean, they have their own set of technical standards. Maybe there's some some politics involved. But in us getting out in front of them, are we sending a signal that we don't trust them and therefore potentially sort of undermining confidence in in them into the long term? Now, I'm not saying, of course, that we shouldn't be, be doing what's in our best interests, It just seems like this might be the combination of the politics of the organisation, the technical challenge of the policy issue itself, plus our own interests in in getting out in front, some of which are political probably as well, as well as as technical, all add up to a mix that might further undermine this little element of the rules-based order. So anyway, um, let's let's move beyond the WHO itself and, and think about international cooperation more generally. Obviously, there is... An expectation that our economy is going to be hit hard though so far it seems that we've escaped the worst of the outbreak although news in the last sort of day is suggesting it is getting worse alan we've talked a lot on this podcast though about the erosion of international cooperation in recent years and i just wonder if if this had been 2008 9 and the world was dealing with this novel coronavirus instead of the global financial crisis whether we might already have seen a G20-like leaders meeting where complex coordination plans were formed and announced. When you look at how the world is dealing with this challenge, Alan, are you taking away any fresh fresh lessons? Oh, look, I, I think that's a really good and interesting
1: question, and I suspect you're right. So many of the issues that we've been talking about on the podcast this year, climate change, people movement, international trade, pandemic disease, require global cooperation and therefore institutions that facilitate that cooperation if we're to manage them effectively. But I've been struck by how quickly the debate on this has moved beyond a sense that we're all in this together. You saw that in the claim by Peter Harcher, that the multilateral system is an extension of global geostrategic competition, rather than an opportunity to work together to solve common problems. Now, that sense has always been there to some extent, especially during the Cold War. But it is, I think, re-emerging strongly, and it has big implications for the operations of the rules-based order. But I always like asking you about your perspective as a theorist, um, Darren. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even looking beyond Australia and China, are these events changing your understanding of the world from that perspective?
0: Yeah, I, I share the gloom about international cooperation and I think I've been focusing more on the national responses and they have been quite fascinating, even as I'm sort of quietly horrified on a personal level. What I'm learning is that health crises test political institutions and social structures in, in novel ways. And moreover, you know the types of issues that those of us who study international relations typically look at, like war and trade and globalisation and even terrorism and human rights, those aren't that helpful, I think, in understanding these new circumstances. You know, many of the countries affected so far have not, or well, at least don't so far, come out of this looking very good. We've already discussed China, where there's a mixed report card, but if we look across the world, it's easy to find fault in other systems. I mean, the United States is prominent here. I mean, testing has been painfully slow. Workers don't have paid sick leave. And of course, President Trump has seemed only to view the crisis through the lens of his own interests, which is possibly why he suggested yesterday that some with the virus might still be able to go to work, which was obviously terrible. Testing in Japan also started off poorly, and there's reporting that bad news was buried early on, and Prime Minister Abe's decision to close schools took everyone by surprise. In Italy, you have images of residents who are walking around checkpoints, and in South Korea claims that the government is not being bold enough. And of course, then you turn to a country like Iran, where the virus actually seems to be having a devastating impact. I mean, some countries have seemed to have fared a bit better you know Singapore and Taiwan have been held up as examples and I would note that Prime Minister Lee's speech early on and I'll link to it in the show notes was a model of calm but purposeful leadership on this but zooming out I can't help but think that there are sort of two models that might be able to succeed best in these circumstances you might think of them as falling at either end of what I would call a transparency spectrum You either lock down everything and have no transparency, as the Chinese have done, or you are highly transparent and share as much information with people as possible. And that's how I'll crudely characterize the Singaporean and Taiwanese responses. Of course, to be transparent, you need to have the capacity to collect a lot of accurate information, which means that for both models at either end of the spectrum, you need significant bureaucratic capacity to pull off. Strong states are needed, in other words. And so for me, therefore, you know, pandemic risks will become another force propelling the global strengthening of states over markets. But before we move on, Alan, any last thoughts from you? Well, this is one for a future episode, but the economic and
1: political implications of the coronavirus epidemic are really going to test the Australia-China economic relationship in new ways for all those commentators who we've seen worrying about australia's over dependence on the chinese market a real time experiment is coming sure there's obviously a lot of concern in the universities and tourism sector about the implications of this for australia's services exports uh, to china even when things get back to normal and even if resources and agriculture Uh, return to growth
0: Mm -hmm. all right well let's move on to our second segment and on the 24th of february we saw mike burgess who's the director general of the australian security intelligence organization asio give the agency's first annual threat assessment right up front he sought to address the reason why he was there in the first place but this was the perception that asio was stepping out of the shadows in his words quote I am taking this opportunity to talk about the security environment we are facing, explain what the threats are and why they are a problem. I want to move beyond the bureaucratic language of annual reports and help everyone understand the significant threats we see directed at Australia and Australians. And I want to give you some insights into what ASIO does every day, end quote. Now this might sound normal, but of course it isn't. If you visit ASIO's website, you see all the public statements the Director General has made since 2015, and it's not that many. And as we've discussed previously on the podcast, including in our interview with Duncan Lewis, whom Burgess replaced towards the end of last year, while ASIO does clearly believe it needs to engage more with the public, it's starting from a very, very low baseline. So given this was labelled as the first annual statement, Alan, and I'm assuming we should expect one every year. I mean, how do you feel about this in principle?
1: Well, okay, I'm I'm in favour, as Mike Burgess said, ASIO already do an annual report, and this really just puts a human face on it. I think Dennis Richardson was the first head of ASIO to make the case that the leader of an organisation which has such power over the lives of ordinary Australians needed to be known to the public. But given how generic most of the information in a statement like this has to be, the challenge will be to find new,
0: fresh ways of conveying risk every year. Mm, That's a good point. The first part of the speech is really an introduction to the organisation, where Burgess emphasises that ASIO is not a secret organisation, but one that operates in full accordance with Australian law and with rigorous oversight and that is staffed by everyday Australians who have mortgages and fight bushfires and attend sporting events like the rest of us. Before he turns to the threat assessment itself, he also talks about how technology impacts and enables ASIO's business. And I think the main point here was to state that recent legislation providing additional powers to overcome encryption have already been helpful in protecting Australians. Alan, any reactions to this first part of the speech? Well,
1: this section had all the polish that communications professionals can bring to a <laughs> uh, to a speech like this. But even so, and speaking as someone who's observed ASIO for a long time from various perspectives, I thought it was a fair description of the culture of most of the people I've known from the organisation, including the emphasis they place on the importance of legality and ethics. And of course, that point about the utility of the communications powers was something they obviously wanted to get on the record mm.
0: the threat assessment itself came in in two halves the first half focused on terrorism and not just from violent islamic extremism but also from what he called right wing extremism which he described as quote intolerance based on race gender and identity and the extreme political views and that intolerance inspires the second half focused on foreign interference, where he said that, quote, The level of threat we face from foreign espionage and interference activities is currently unprecedented. It is higher now than it was at the height of the Cold War, end quote. With some of the tactics, quote, sound like they've sprung from the pages of a Cold War thriller. Burgess spoke of one sleeper agent who had lain dormant for many years building community and business links, and then started feeding his handlers information about Australian-based expat dissidents, which led to the harassment of them and their families. Alan, though, there wasn't too much in the speech that surprised me. I mean, do you feel the same way? I guess what's most interesting to me is that I haven't actually seen that much written about the speech either, and I went looking, leading me to infer that this has all been taken as being very normal, perhaps, and... I wonder, in the context of of Tim Watts' speech that you mentioned earlier, where he's arguing that we really need to strengthen public confidence in democratic institutions, whether this sort of measured reception is actually a positive thing. I mean,
1: what do you think? I suppose the inevitable problem here was that without practical examples you simply end up with a series of assertions that everything is getting more dangerous than it has been. Islamist terrorism, right-wing terrorism, espionage, foreign interference. And that was one of the interesting things about Tim Watts' speech, I think. He he called for more specific indications of where the problems were, clear examples of foreign Mm. interference. Now, maybe it's true, I'm sure it is, that all these things are getting worse. It's impossible for us any of us outside the system to get a realistic sense of what's meant by, for example, unprecedented threat level. I'm comfortable letting ASIO do its job with the resources it needs, but one of the problems, one of the inevitable problems with presentations like this in public is that agencies whose job is to identify risk Will never want to appear complacent or to suggest that the risk is diminishing.
0: One last question, Alan. It seemed to me that DFAT struggles to capture the attention of the Australian public, and now that you know, spooks are coming out of the shadows, I wonder whether it will be even harder for diplomats to connect directly with the general public. You know, does the DFAT secretary Frances Adamson need to instigate her own annual address? And I could even name it for her, the annual Australia in the World Statement. So answer me honestly, Alan, a good idea or a great idea? Uh, Impossible dream, Darren. Look, the
1: difference here is that the uh, Director General of ASIO is a statutory appointment. That is, under the ASIO Act, he has personal responsibility for certain activities of the organisation. The secretary of DFAT, in contrast, is principal adviser to a cabinet minister and accountability for policy rests you know, properly uh, with the minister. I, I do think you're onto something, though. I really would like to see the foreign minister deliver to parliament an annual Australia in the world statement like that. That sort of broad strategic speech about foreign policy objectives by ministers leading to a robust parliamentary debate used to be a much more frequent feature of Australian public policy and I'd certainly welcome its return. Lots of fodder that would give to this podcast.
0: (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Okay, well, let's move on to our final segment we're going to quickly cover two bilateral leaders' visits with Prime Minister Scott Morrison hosting Indonesian President Jogo Widodo and then the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern uh, this past month. President Jokowi came first and he was invited to address the Australian Parliament in part to mark the 70th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations. It was a very friendly speech and covered various themes Headlined perhaps by his call for the need to promote free and fair trade, and this occurred sort of in parallel with the two countries ratifying a comprehensive economic partnership agreement during the visit. But other topics included promoting democracy and countering terrorism, working together on environmental protection and lowering carbon emissions, and perhaps most interestingly, for the two countries to anchor development programs in the South Pacific. There was no public mention of China. Uh, nor did it seem like human rights concerns in the Indonesian province of West Papua were on the agenda. So, Alan, of course, Jakarta is one of our most important bilateral relationships and justifiably is one of our largest embassies. But can you help me out here? Is there something here for me to to dig my teeth into? To me, it just seems that the Indonesian news does not penetrate deeply into foreign policy discussions in this country, let alone the Australian public. Unless, of course, Aussies are on death row or asylum seeker boats are on the horizon. I contrast this with what seems like genuine enthusiasm in the government to build an India relationship. Are we in a holding pattern with Indonesia? And maybe if we are, is this even a bad thing? Perhaps we don't want the public attention and the politics that goes with it to be focused on Indonesia and just let our diplomats do their work in peace. If there's a broad
1: consensus in Australian foreign policy these days, it's that in these uncertain times, we need to pay particular attention to building our relationships with our neighbours in the Indo-Pacific. We got that message clearly in the speeches that both Maurice Payne and Penny Wong delivered at the launch of Rory Medcalfe's new book on the Indo-Pacific, which we'll come to later, just this last week. So the visit by President Widodo was important. In contrast to his predecessor, Cecilia Bambang Yudhoyono, Jokowi hasn't been known as a particularly internationally focused or strategic leader, but he's worked cooperatively with Australian prime ministers since Tony Abbott, uh, including Scott Morrison. The prime minister's speech of welcome was very warm and positive. He greeted him, to quote him, as the leader of our most important neighbour and as a dear, dear friend. Australia, he said, would always stand with Indonesia. The opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, gave an equally generous welcome. I thought the interesting thing about President Widodo's speech was the strength of his language. Australia is Indonesia's closest friend, he declared. That was a really big call Mm. for a member of of ASEAN. Mm. And much bolder than the usual diplomatic locution on these questions, which would be something like, Indonesia has no closer friends than (laughs) Australia. He set out, as you were talking about before, a big optimistic agenda for bilateral relations, jointly advocating the values of democracy and human rights, discouraging identity politics, reinforcing open, free and fair economic principles and he ended with this flourish, and this is a quote, the collaboration of the Indonesia-Australia partnership in the midst of rising global uncertainties can be illustrated by the movie Avengers Endgame. When the forces of good unite, the Avengers assemble and the common enemy can be defeated. Now, I'm sure you're going to understand that <laughs> reference, Darren, and you can explain it to me <laughs> later. I was really happy to hear such language from the Indonesian president, but I do have to say that I think it was a less accurate portrayal of the real relationship than the speech given by SBY in uh, 2010, which was the last Indonesian leader to address the parliament. I think that was the best speech I ever saw a foreign leader give to the Australian parliament. It was certainly substantial and positive But the difference was that he didn't evade the difficulties. The most persistent problem in our relationship, he said, is the persistence of age-old stereotypes, misleading, simplistic caricatures that depict the other side in a bad light. Now, sadly, that hasn't changed much at all. The latest Lowy poll shows that although the Indonesian president describes Australia as Indonesia's closest friend in the world, Only 1% of Australians would agree with him. Mm. Equally concerning is the fact that 59% of respondents to the poll last year disagreed, disagreed with the statement, Indonesia is a democracy. That's actually more than back in 2013 when the question was first asked, this level of ignorance among the Australian public is truly worrying and nothing much seems to shift it. So although I'm pleased that at the highest levels of government on both sides there's support for a deeper relationship, I don't think we can be content to simply let our diplomats uh, do their work in peace, as you, as you put it. We can't be confident about this critical relationship until we have at least some sort of matching level of understanding on the part of the public.
0: Okay, well, turning finally to the PM's meeting with Prime Minister Ardern, what made headlines, of course, was Ardern's public admonishment of the Australian government for returning New Zealand citizens who had committed crimes in Australia, but whom had no meaningful connection with New Zealand, for example, because they had moved to Australia when small children. Let me quote her. Australia is well within its rights to deport individuals who break your laws. New Zealand does the same, but we have a simple request. Send back genuine Kiwis. Do not deport your people and your problems. Alan, do you have any comment on this dispute? And could you offer any advice to Prime Minister Ardern on how to get some traction with the government on this issue? Here we have the country that
1: 59% of Australians think, again, according to the poll, is actually our best friend, New Zealand. Prime Ministers Ardern and... Morrison are probably not soulmates <laughs> no. but compared with the loathing that some of their predecessors had for each other uh, mostly when they were from the same side of politics like Malcolm Fraser and Robert Muldoon or Bob Hawke and David Longey they actually seemed to rub along quite well This was the annual prime ministerial meeting. And it's important to remember that the discussion, as the PM said, covered a much broader agenda than returned criminals, including defence and the economic relationship and responses to the COVID-19. But the public focus was all on Australia's deportation of people with criminal convictions as who've lived in Australia almost their entire lives, but haven't taken out Australian citizenship. As you were saying, Ardern used the phrase testing the relationship, which which was quite strong. You can understand the concern in New Zealand. Ardern noted that she'd met a woman a few weeks ago who'd moved to Australia as a one-year-old, had three children in Australia, but was returned to a country she didn't feel was her own. But Morrison offered not the slightest suggestion of change Mm. on Australia's part. For him, citizenship was citizenship and that was it. There have been plenty of other issues like this in the past, such as New Zealanders' access to Australian social services. And both leaders at the press conference looked to me like they were speaking to their own domestic Mm. audiences other than trying to persuade each other. But the inevitable result in New Zealand was that trusty old standby in the trans-Tasman relationship, newspaper cartoons of Jacinda at the wicket about to meet Scotty doing some (laughs) underarm bowling. (laughs) Now, maybe it's inevitable that this is the sort of thing that gets media coverage, but there are so many more positives than negatives in this relationship. I really do think that the way... Australia and New Zealand deal with each other is unique in the world. I, I just can't think of any other two countries that relate in the same way as, in effect, one
0: system, two countries. One system, two countries. That's a great turn of phrase, Alan. Is that, did you just make that up yourself or has that been used before? I didn't just make it up. I, I have used it before. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very good. All right. Our final Segment Reading, Listening, and Watching. Alan, what have you got for us this week? Two reading recommendations this week.
1: The first is thanks to one of our podcast listeners who emailed suggesting a book called Sandworm A New Era of Cyber War and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers by Andy Greenberg. Greenberg is a reporter from Wired magazine and he writes what's essentially a detective mystery. About attribution and motive, centering on the Russian cyber attacks on Ukraine, but then broadening out to cover all the dimensions of cyber espionage and cyber warfare, including the American use of Stuxnet against Iran. It's written in a racy, pacey style that gives even someone as untechy as me a fair understanding of the process. Cyber is now a permanent feature of statecraft and warfare, and sandworm's a great way into it for a non-specialist. And secondly, of course, as we mentioned earlier, the new book by Rory Medcalf from the National Security College at the ANU contest for the Indo-Pacific, Why China Won't Map the Future. As I've said before on the podcast, there's really no one who deserves more credit for the spread of the now ubiquitous term Indo-Pacific than Rory. And the book dives right into all the most current and urgent elements of Australia's foreign and strategic policy. We'll all have our own views on the various dimensions of the regional order that Rory reviews, including on China's role and ambitions. But if you're interested in the debate about the contest for the Indo-Pacific, including what that contest
0: actually is, then this is essential reading. Well, let me echo both those recommendations. I haven't read Andy Greenberg's book, but I've read his work in Wired, and it's excellent. I've even assigned it in classes that I've taught. And I've also read Rory's book and thoroughly enjoyed it. And we're planning to try to get him on the podcast to talk all things Indo-Pacific, as well as his day job running the ANU's National Security College at some point later this year. But for today, let me recommend something else, an essay in the March edition of The Atlantic by David Brooks, who is a New York Times columnist. And the essay is titled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And it's a devastating critique of sort of modern Western social structures and how we, in the West, organise our families and our communities. Now, as regular listeners to this podcast will know one area of of research that interests me is the domestic political foundations of the rules-based order. But if you're going to have a theory which says that domestic politics drives foreign policy, then you also need a theory for what drives domestic politics. And of course, we have stories about globalisation and automation and cultural upheaval, and they all have their role. But I also think that there is a social story to tell as well, about the way in which we organise ourselves and, and some of the sort of the atomisation and the isolation that is almost an epidemic now across the West and how that translates into political forces. So highly recommend it. It's one of the best essays I've read in a while. Okay, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank especially outgoing AWIA intern Isabel Hancock for her help with research and audio editing xc chong for research and welcome incoming aaa intern maddie gordon also for research and of course rory stenning for composing our theme music talk to you again soon